and I can't express enough to a lot of parents in school. Our kids always went to public school. Like, how do your kids, how are they so, how can they sit still? How can they, I mean, not that I didn't have a lot of hyper kids, but I'm just saying, how can they be attentive? And, you know, honestly, I think the training every Sunday in church, sitting with us quietly, wasn't easy, but they learned. They learned to listen. I mean, there's just small things like that, like everybody said about repeating those things, like that became part of our life. And I absolutely love the hasty way of doing things because we had the Woodworth way. And, you know, that's what we did as our family. And and our kids had to um, respect their siblings. That was the first thing of importance. They could not come home and treat them. I said, you know, would you treat a friend like that? I don't know if that's proper psychology, but that's why I said, you know, you treat your sibling well, I mean, this is your family. This is your team. So that just brought us together really close as a family. And we played a lot. So I didn't just send the kids out to play. We played with them. I mean, not all the time, obviously, although my house looks like I play all the time. So, <laughs> but, um, anyway, this, I'll just real quick read this. Um, how do we effectively parent in a situation where Christian grandparents boast of ungodly actions to my children? Um, and view any discussion on that issue as not honoring elders. Okay. So, In all honesty, I had a wonderful mom, I had a wonderful childhood, but when I was a teen, my mom became an alcoholic, and that was really tough. Um, And as you said, I chose not to drink because, well, I did in high school, but we chose not to drink because we knew that we never wanted to lead our children that way. Um, But it was really hard for me to explain to my own children about my parents and their relationship, although I guess they did love each other. um, It wasn't always shown. It was a really tough situation. Um, They cursed. um, You know, my mom drank. um, There's probably other things. But in all those things, we constantly respected them. I... um, yeah. I mean, I served my mom. I love my mom, prayed for my mom. It was really hard sometimes when I wanted my mom to babysit and we got there and she was, had been drinking. And so we just talked to the kids about it and the younger kids were pretty little at the time. So, um, it was hard to explain that to them, but I, I just think we kept building respect and kept loving them. And, you know, um, we did. I mean, I'm sure that there's other people that have really difficult situations, much tougher than mine was, as far as a parent that's choosing to do something that's not good or speaking poorly. Um, but it's a teaching situation, you know, that that person is choosing that. I don't have to choose that. You don't have to choose that. But um, we still respected and loved them and, and, and built things into our um, – our lives that included them. We always included them. So, and, um, and God was so good. And by the time my mom passed away, um, even though I was still hiding and taking alcohol out of the bottom of her cupboard where she was at a home, um, she had really come to know the Lord. We had a wonderful relationship and God allowed me. And I want to tell you this too. If you have a poor relationship with a parent, really work on fixing that, (laughs) And however, God can help heal that. And again, I'm not a counselor, I don't know. But I just know that's really important in your relationship to your children to really mend that. So, And I'll let somebody else deal with this. Um, how do you deal with a strong-willed child? Well, I'll real quick just say you love them. And you realize very early that that strong will or whatever it is is probably going to be one of their greatest assets and which is the thing that really makes you the angriest <laughs> about them. And also watch out because probably they're just like you. 
And so if you can kind of look back on your own life and realize who you were and how you, you know, grew up and who loved you. My kids now that have children, they're, my oldest, our oldest daughter is 38. She goes, oh, my gosh, Mom, like, why didn't you just get rid of me? You know, because <laughs> she now has four or almost five of her own. And she's like, oh, my goodness. So eventually they get around to really appreciating you. Believe me, they do. And honestly, the lifelong journey with her being a parent is one of the most wonderful. If you invest now in your children, that investment, you are a millionaire. It reaps incredible, incredible returns. So it's worth it every day. It's hard. Just keep doing it. Keep doing the right thing. And honestly, I feel like for me anyway, I was um, very deficient the way I was raised as far as raising my own children. So I just laid my life down and said, Jesus, you're going to have to do this because I really can. And gosh, he did. He just took me by the hand. Not that I didn't make a lot of mistakes, but I really was dependent on him. So I have a mic up. I have a mic. Oh, sorry. I, I actually, I, I'd like to comment on one of the questions there. Um, you know, we we've had to, we had to make some very difficult decisions um, about the grandparent, um, and I think I think that there are times when you your parents had their turn raising children, and now it's your turn to raise your children, and if you're in disagreement with your parents, uh, setting boundaries with your parents. Uh, not cleaning up after them with your children. You would rather set parent boundaries with your parents than clean up after them with your children. Does that make sense? And so, um, you know, my children never met Sharon's mom. She passed away a couple of years ago. She was a raging alcoholic. And it wasn't a safe environment. You know, she had her turn at raising a child. And her influence... And that's a radical decision that we never wanted to have to make. But for the sake of our children, we had to make that decision. And it's a grievous decision. Mm -hmm. We would have loved to have had her in our lives. But we couldn't because she wasn't willing to abide by certain structures that were required for involvement with our children. And so um, that's a tough balance. I don't... You know, everybody has to draw their own boundaries on that. Yeah. But, yep. um, uh, I, you know, one time my, my parents were supposed to come down and, and babysit our kids. But they were in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad was not handling himself well. And one of the hardest conversations I ever had to have mm-hmm. with my father was uninviting him to come to my house. Mm-hmm. I said, Mom can come, but you aren't invited to come this time. And he just dropped his head, and it was a, it was a wake-up call for him uh, about... Because we couldn't afford to be gone mm-hmm. while they were in conflict in front of our children. It just wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, we love our parents, and dishonoring them... It feels like dishonoring them, but we're honoring parenting. We're honoring the values of Christ when we set boundaries on inappropriate behavior by our parents as hard as that is going to be okay the question that i have here in front of me is how do you navigate public school influence in the life of your children Uh, what's most important to prepare them for secular views and so forth um, that don't align with christianity and what should you not do Um, we had a we have we had the value 
of having our children in Christian school for a couple of years before they ended up in public school because they themselves went to public school and they had they were like, whoa, this is a different place. They could see the contrast between, you know, kind of being in a, in a Christian classroom. Um, but, but for me, the, the primary focus for us is staying aware of what they're experiencing so that you can respond to it, right? So, so Natalie, in middle school, they study evolution. We've had some wonderful conversation. You know, your, your first response as a Christian parent is to, to want to go, ah, you know, and pull them out of that environment. And no, absolutely not. Why would we want them to be in that environment but be prepared? I heard, I heard a pastor years ago um, say that I don't, he said, I don't pray that my children will be protected in the world. I pray that my children would be dangerous for Jesus in the world. And that's a radically different perspective on sending your children out into the world. I do want to protect them, and I do pray for that. But more than that, I want to prepare them to be dangerous for Jesus. And so I equipped her with all of these responses to all the challenges to evolution. And there, here's a hole here. And she was, she was so excited to go to school. With her notes. With, you know, with, with her as a 12-year-old, with... Knowing where, what we were sending her into because she was ready, you know. And so I think that I, I really want to encourage you that if your kids are in public school, that's what you want to be. You want to be preparing your kids for what they're going to hear, understand what they're hearing because you're asking them, what's going on? And what are you, what are you, you know, da, 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 da. You know, we have um, family life education. <clears throat> you probably have that in your schools too, right, where they get way too graphic, way too early with sexuality and all kinds of things. And so many Christian parents in our school system, they, you can opt your kid out as, if you want. You can, as a Christian parent, you can opt your kid out of FLE. But my response is to wh- why would you do that, right? Because now they're going to hear what their friends heard in FLE out on the, out on the playground. <laughs> and they don't, know any, they, don't know what, you know, they don't know anything about that. So we end up having those conversations way earlier than we want to. But, now, but they're ready, right? They've heard it from us before they hear it from them, and they have the right answers rather than hearing it from their friends. So it's really, really important to know what they're hearing, either because you've, you've connected with the school um, or you're hearing it from them and you're responding and equipping along the way. It, it, it's exhausting, mm-hmm. but being on top of that is absolutely imperative. Yeah, I think um, the key is being proactive and always being one step ahead. And- it's exhausting. I only have two, and I'm exhausted just trying to stay one step ahead of the issues, the technology, the information, the sex ed, the things that they're being exposed to. But that's our job. That's what I'm here to do. And it says, what, what would you not do? Um, I think I would work very hard. We, we work very hard to not villainize the school, to not villainize other kids, other families, you know, kids who use bad language. And, you know, we just we just say... They come from families that don't understand the importance of Jesus. You know, we, we don't talk awful about them. We help them understand and, and we pray for them rather than, you know, they, rather than just villainize and say, you know, because it's, it's easy to want to do that as a parent. We are so separate from the world. We are, you know, ah, you know, and to draw this, draw the line. There is a line, obviously. The line's Jesus. But draw it in such a way that we invite right behavior, right understanding, right perspective with compassion toward those who don't believe what we believe rather than, rather than villainizing them. Um, last question I have here. Did you have one more or should I? I have several. Okay. I'll do this one. I'm not sure when they're going to call time. But um, what advice would you give for a mother-son relationship when it seems as though there is more boundary testing 
than obedience. Honestly, this could be a mother-daughter relationship. Our daughter is firstborn, very strong-willed. Our son was actually much more compliant, um, although he has had his moments. Um, and I, I think this is something that Grant alluded to sitting in on the last session, is when you, when you have a child that is constantly testing the boundaries, that, that, is a, that is evidence of a power struggle that's going on in your home and in your family. And it's probably happening because you have not been consistent in the past or have shown weakness or have given away power um, at certain times or to certain degrees. And I think it's important. There are, dialogue is very important. Dialoguing with your child, drilling down to, you know, you're, it seems like you're really pushing the limits here. Help me understand what's going on. Um, but at the same time, it's also important to, to establish who has the power. Uh, and be willing to be inconvenienced. I think that's one of the biggest dilemmas in parenting today is we are so rushed. We are so crammed for time. We are so stressed out. We are trying to do too much in too little time. And we do not want to be inconvenienced. And parenting takes time. And that's why we're willing to compromise and we're not consistent and we give away the power because, well, we just need to move on to the next thing, so off we go. Be deliberate be purposeful, take the time, slow down, confront the struggle, talk about it. I mean, as your children get, get older and older, I mean, outside of those early preschool years, you need to be really dialoguing with them and drilling down and helping them see what's going on, what is that dynamic and why it's happening. I'd like to stick with the, 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 the mother-son element of that for a second, though, because there are times where she's having a problem with Adam when really at that point it's empowering. You don't, want, you don't ever want to step in on your spouse and kind of um, take their power away by, you know, it, a, a mother should never say, you wait till your father comes home. I mean, that's not, you know, you need to be empowered as the mom to address the situation. At the same time, however, there are times where I need to come to her defense, and that, where I look at my son in the eye and say, she's not just your mother, she is my wife, and you are not doing that to my wife. Where I, or then now kind of male to male, you know, I'm kind of pulling the alpha male deal on him, mm-hmm. that that is, you are not going to treat a female, let alone your mother. And we talk a lot about respect. You know, we talk a lot about how, because we have a boy and a girl, we talk an awful lot about how he handles females and what the distinctions are there. Um, and that if there's a time where I need to intervene on her behalf with him, when it comes, becomes issues of respect and the way males treat females and all of that, I definitely would do that. And that goes further even, like holding the door for your wife but teaching your sons to do the same. All those uh, chivalrous things are not dead. <laughs> and so watching their dad do that all the time is just, uh, it's teaching. It's teaching them how to handle or to treat their own wives, so... I think we're back to you. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Um, I'm not sure. If I... How do you bring truth to a group of teens that are promoting strong secular values to a group of teens just trying to find their Christ-like identity? I'm assuming there's a group of teens that are Christians and there's a group of teens that are non-Christians and they're fighting. Here's that what I'm getting in this comment, question. Um, one of the things that, uh, uh, first of all, I do is get involved in Matt's youth group where, you know, 
They need, they need to be surrounded by other youth that are, that are fighting the good fight, too, that they're learning how to talk to others about Christ. They're learning how to, uh, to do that. The, um, I always used to challenge my teens as a youth pastor um, to see the secular people around them the way Jesus sees them. Don't fight with them. Reach out to them. Don't join them. Be an example to them. This is how God develops you. I, I used to always try to teach the teens that when they were in these difficult times, um, that uh, this, is, this is God's training group t- time for you. He's got incredible things ahead of you. Remember one of the greatest, uh, I'll tell you a little secret here, when I first came here, one of the greatest problems I had as a youth pastor here was I started having all these kids come in that had, old, they had leather jackets and cigarettes. They said, why are you bringing these terrible kids in? <laughs> I said, wait a minute, isn't it my job to win people to Christ here? Um, and so we ended up winning a lot of them to Christ and joining in. And so, But our kids finally caught the vision of that, that that was part of who they were too. They weren't just here to be in the youth group. They were here to grow in Christ, and they were here to reach out. And so um, the challenge um, for um, your Christian kids heading up against strong secular values is, is help them understand the difference between the two and that which one are you going to follow, just like I read in Romans 6 a minute ago. Which one are you going to be slaves to? And, how you, and start plotting out. How do you want to see God use you in these people, in these kids' lives? What's your goal? And we used to try to help the teens set a goal of pick five kids you want to see changed this year in your school. And um, you should be challenging them. This is these, these kids that you're interacting with, you know, start being Christ to them. And then they stop taking their focus off of, you know, um, fighting against their values and my values. They start seeing them as a mission field the way they should. You have another question? No. Oh, yeah. You ended up with a bunch. Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I... You're loaded right, up. So... Okay, so here we go. So um, one of the questions that I have is how do I talk to a five-year-old about adoption in, uh, incorporating from a faith view? You know, my response to that, I assume, I'm assuming that this five-year-old is adopted. So that, that's kind of coming from that vantage point. Um, to me, the most beautiful illustration of the love of God in all of the Bible is the theme of adoption. And unless you are a Jew here today, most I doubt, we are all adopted into the family. And that is how I would approach that. Because the value of adoption uh, that God places on every single one of us when the gospel went to the Gentiles is the illustration with the full rights, the full, the full benefits of being a child. Um, I think that that image is heals any, you know, is, is part of what heals the wounds of the idea of adoption in our world. Adoption has a negative connotation. It doesn't in the Bible. It, 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 nowhere in the Bible is it that way. And so um, to, help them, to help them see the value that they were chosen, just like God chose each one of us. So uh, one of the other questions I have is, how do, you, how do you deal with a child who perpetually lies and won't admit to it? Well, I would want to ask a lot of questions, and our psychology folks down here would probably want to ask a lot of questions, too. The age of the child is really a critical piece in understanding uh, the, the developmental elements of all of that. <clears throat> the first thing I would do is I would, I, would, I would ensure that the child understands intellectually that lying is wrong and why. Okay, so just, that's just the, the mental piece of understanding the reality of that. I would also then set consistent consequences related to that, known, understood consequences that when that happens, this will always happen. 
And some of that may be related to the child's currency, how they like being paid, if you will, what they value in the world. But then the third piece for me would also be understanding what is, what's the fuel to that behavior? In other words, are there things going on for that child, maybe some psychological elements, some fears, some things related to what's going on for them internally, that when push comes to shove and time comes to make a choice, they consistently make a choice that ultimately is wrong and doesn't benefit them. Um, so I think those three pieces, to me, if it's an older child, we have a little bit of a bigger issue than if we're talking about you know, a five-year-old or, or, or whatever. The longer that behavior is ingrained, the more it becomes a behavior that is entrenched apart from the initiating reasons. That's why it's important to get underneath to those, to kind of the, the fueling factors uh, as quickly as possible before it gets to something that takes on a life of its own. Now, I don't know if you guys want to comment further on that. But. Well, one of the things, one of the things that um, one of the things you have to be aware of is that in order to have good intimacy, and I'm talking about not physical, I'm talking about emotional connection, you have to have truth. Mm-hmm. So when there's not truth in your life, I've got to ask, are you not connected to people? There, you're, there's probably a connection problem here. You're not emotionally connected to people because if I, it's easier for me to lie to somebody on the street than it is to my wife. I can't lie to my wife. She can look at me and know I'm connected to her. I don't want to do that, right? So if a kid is constantly lying, I'm, I'm going to look at the relationship between the kid and the parent and how emotionally connected they are and that they remove themselves. They have to remove themselves to keep on lying. And you've got to find out what's going on there. And so we, you look for reconnecting. And then you would focus on, I really, if i got a kid that's having lying problems, i really got to start working on not only me, but everybody in the family connecting better emotionally mm-hmm. and connecting in such a way that it's more than just because the truth is what's necessary for people to bond. The truth is necessary for a true intimacy. You've got to see that as, as one of the uh, uh, flags that they're not connected. I'll, I'll just add to that. I guess the, they say the mom's the heart of the home and we're the thermometer. And I think we have to be just really um, observant of our children and really with them a lot. I mean, I chose to stay home. We That's what we chose. Um, we have, also have a lot of children. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of little personalities running around and just to really pay attention. So you'll notice things your kids do, quirks they have. Um, young, and you just stay on that, you know, and, and don't be worried. It's, sometimes it's hard to admit if your child has a, a, an idiosyncrasy or something that you think is maybe not right, but get help. Find someone and get the help right away because usually there's a, there's a good solution, but the earlier you start, whew, much better it is. So I just wanted to say that. And I have one last question. I'm going to open it to the floor. <laughs> um, hang on one second. Um, how do you help... Keep your chi- keep your kids from fighting, or help resolve sibling conflict, i.e., how to help them get along. <laughs> That's a really really good question. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna let you guys answer that. I'm just gonna say one little thing Phil did, and that was um, <laughs> well he was very good at this. I wasn't always so good, but. Um, we would get them when they were really head to head and they could not resolve whatever it was. He made them sing their apologies to each other. And usually that brought in a lot of laughter and then we could get to the bottom of it and, and kind of resolve. So humor, <laughs> humor is really helpful. And often you just have to throw your hands up and laugh because, oh my goodness, sometimes you don't have the answer and sometimes you just are tired of 
figured it out. So anyway, we did try. He's really good at humor. It helped all of us, softened us, and get us, you know, laughter. What is it? All those good chemicals it brings up. So, so you guys can finish answering, like, solid answers to this. <laughs> you could do like the Navajos did, because I have family members that are troubled. We have a lot of uh, Medicaid um, people that come in there, some difficult families in the Bear area. I said, I always say, well, you know, if, we, if nothing else works, let's do what the Navajos do. Um, you're going you're gonna to tie their two hands together and put them in the middle of the field and say, you cannot come home if you come home apart. And they give them three days. <laughs> and they must stay tied together for three days. You probably end up in jail. But um, <laughs> the concept is very interesting that the Indians used to do that with siblings in that the fact that they have to have something they do together. And that's what you've got to try to do with some of your creativity in the kids is see if you can't find things that they do together and they learn to enjoy each other. When they learn to enjoy each other, things start to change. So you've got to try to find that positive thing where they can enjoy each other. Um, and that's difficult. I mean, that takes hard work to figure out what to do. And it, uh, it may mean that, um, you know, you're going to take them away for a weekend and, and, and really just focus on doing something fun together and uh, try to get them to interact at a different level that they haven't acted before. Um, I know, too, for my kids, because they were four years apart when the difficulties came, uh, we used to have things called um, worm weeks. And the goal was, who could be the greatest worm? Well, what's a worm? The worm is the lowest one on the ground. And so you earn points and all this thing for who served the most in that week. At the end of the week, you get, we moved this little worm, and you, you got the most worms. And by doing different things, and you had to come up with creative ways to be the worm. Like, you got, it was fun. You get up, and all the dishwa- dishes are out of the dishwasher. They're all been put away. You go, ah, you got the worm today. And, 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 but you get extra worms if you do stuff for your siblings. And so it's that whole idea of learning to serve. And then at the end of the week, you sit down and you count up who had the, who's, the, who's the big worm who served the most to each other. And they get a big prize, take them out to dinner. We celebrate it. And then we just talked about it as a family. We go, see, see, it's really different when you learn to serve each other, isn't it? See what it does to our relationships? And go, yeah, Dad, this has really been fun. Can we do it again? I said, well, okay, sometime down the line. <laughs> but um, if you can uh, teach that, um, uh, that whole concept, then create fun ways to do it. You can maybe head up sibling rivalry um, in those kind of matters. I think that one of the things that we found um, in dealing with the competition and the fighting and all that with R2, number one, I think just having two makes it uh, challenging. You know, when there's a little bit more complexity in the house, people are bickering, but there's just, having two, they are so competitive with each other because there's no one else to kind of bring some texture to the situation. But um, I feel like that one of the things that's been to our benefit is understanding that, that, that often it's not just that they're not getting along. It's that there are reasons why they're not getting along and that there's, there, are th- there are elements of their personalities that are contributing to the situation that they need to understand. So Natalie's our oldest. She's very strong-headed. She is our strong-willed child. She's very bossy. And <clears throat> we tell her that. Um, and we tell her that she's going to be a great leader one day if we don't kill her before she gets there, right? So um, my son is much more... Um, uh, soft-hearted and so forth, and he responds very he, he responds very poorly to her bossiness, right? He starts to feel emasculated, and I have to recognize that when he lashes out at her, it's not just because they're not getting along. It's because she is 
taking something from him that wounds him as a young male growing up. And so, I mean, we, and we could flip those and, and, and understand the reverse as well. But to understand their personality dynamic and their gender issues and how all of that is tied in, she needs to understand, if, if we don't help her understand her, she's going to marry a man who she can kick around. And we don't want her to marry a man that she can kick around. We want her to marry a man who can respond to her strength well, who's still going to lead his home well, and they can kind of move into the future together. If Adam doesn't understand this whole dynamic, he's going to marry a woman who kicks him around, right? And he's not going to lead well in his home. This isn't just that they don't get along. There are personality dynamics that we need to understand and that we need to help them understand so that they can blossom into Christ-likeness regardless of those personality dynamics and to, to kind of move forward together. And to us, respect and value and honor is absolutely paramount. We, we're constantly, this isn't just that, that you're not getting along. This is that you are disrespecting each other. And that's the unacceptable part. It's not just inconvenient to us. For most parents, not getting along is inconvenience. We want it to stop. That's an unacceptable reason to respond to your children's not getting along. And so we bring it to the place where we feel like it is the heart, the core of it, which is you're being disrespectful and dishonoring to one another. That is not what Christ is a Christ-like quality. And so therefore, it's unacceptable, and we're going to help train you to honor one another. And I feel like we're getting to the point now where our children really are they are beginning more and more to actually enjoy being together. They do honor each other. They recognize when they don't. They apologize more quickly and ask for forgiveness. But those, the, the years from like, you know, five to ten or whatever, you're like, oh my gosh. Because you do just want it to stop. You just want to just, just eliminate the behavior, and that's never a good motivation for parents. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let's give a big hand to our panel. Thanks.